Al Jazeera podcast. We had family members that were burned alive in cars. I have family that's still stuck with no gas, no water, no power, no way to tell our family in the mainland that we're safe. Hawaii's wildfires have become the deadliest the United States has seen in more than 100 years. I had a family member that was stuck in their house until 12 o'clock the night that the fire was going. The death toll is already over 100. But with some 1,000 people still missing, that number is constantly rising. And the island of Maui was hardest hit. Oh my gosh, look at the harbor. Are you guys believing that? Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness, look at all these houses. It's clear high winds and drought fueled by climate change have played a role. But Native Hawaiians who have borne the brunt of the disaster also blame man-made changes to Maui's landscape. Now, that landscape is destroyed, along with much of the heritage of the islands, a kingdom that goes back long before the United States or other foreign powers first set sail there. Those flames ravaging the historic city of Lahaina, once the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. Now much of Lahaina, once graced with stately landmarks, is but smoldering ruins. So if this disaster was man-made, is it fated to happen again? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking to a seventh-generation Native Hawaiian who's a leader fighting climate change in the U.S. My name is Kaniela Ng. I was born and raised on Maui. I'm Kanaka Maoli, coming from seven generations on Maui. Um, and I'm the national director of the Green New Deal Network. I also have two kids, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. So that's what drives me to make sure they have a, a livable planet, clean air and clean water when they're my age. Mm, well said. So, Kanyala, what are some of the stories you can share with us about what's happening right now in Maui? We've seen videos of people fleeing Maui by motorcycle, by boat, people reportedly jumping into boats in the ocean to get away. Is everyone you know okay? Yeah, I'm fortunate where my friends and family are okay. Some of my friends out in Lahaina have just found their brothers and uncles. Mm. Their homes are gone. Homes that they've known for generations um, have been reduced to ashes. But many others have lost family members. The death toll is uncertain now. Um, We're still at the phase where there are people out looking for their loved ones. Um, Every day, uh, the death toll seems to go up by a dozen or so. My mom, who used to live in Lahaina, just moved away a couple months ago, right in time. So I want to take us back. August 8th is when wildfires began ravaging Hawaii's Big Island and Maui, where you're from. The fires have raised the historic town of Lahaina and Maui. The terrible reality sinking in after wildfires raced across Maui, the death toll rising and likely to go higher. I think everyone from the outside can see what's happening and know and understand on a basic level that this is devastating for anyone 
who um, has a tie to that region. But beyond that, as an indigenous Hawaiian and someone from Maui, what do you want people to know about just how significant it is that Lahaina has been destroyed? Yeah, well, thanks for asking that question. Um, It's something that gets missed in media interviews sometimes. Um, So I appreciate that. Lahaina is often characterized as a tourist destination. That's how people relate to it. So it makes sense that people are writing about it that way. But its historic and cultural significance runs deep for local people, but especially Kanaka Maoli, Native Hawaiians. It was the original capital of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Before statehood, before Hawaii was a territory, it was a thriving nation. It was the most literate nation in the world and Lahaina was the capital. After unification by Kamehameha the Great, Lahaina was named the capital city of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Its small boat harbor was already bustling with whaling ships, more than 400 vessels a year. Front Street became the boomtown gathering place with hotels, inns and shops lining the wharf. And Kanakamali still live here. Like even though there's racist tiki bars and tacky shops along Front Street, the people that live adjacent to it and on it tend to be predominantly Native Hawaiian living on the same plot of land that their ancestors did in the 1800s, sometimes even before that. And these are the keepers of some of the deepest Indigenous knowledge in the world. So it's when these kinds of crises hit, these climate disasters, it tends to hit like Indigenous people, Black people, Brown people first. And the irony and tragic part of that is they're the keepers of the knowledge that would really create a society that wouldn't lead us to imminent ecological collapse and climate doom. Can you talk specifically about what we know has been lost? I know there's the site of the first palace. Uh, There's a tree that is still standing, a banyan tree. A majestic 150-year-old banyan tree is badly burned, but still standing. A symbol of the city's proud heritage and resilience. Can you talk to us about what we know Lahaina looks like right now? Yeah. uh, If it was up to me, I would be there right now, just lifting up rubble with my hands, doing everything I can. I'm not allowed. Most people aren't allowed. The National Guard trying to keep people away. Maui police abruptly shutting down this entrance. Some community members are upset that the Red Cross won't allow them in, the National Guard won't allow them in. What it looks like on the ground is... Pretty much every building across Front Street has been reduced to ashes. A lot of the most uh, historic buildings are, are gone. And I always thought Front Street was remarkable. It's like no other, it's, it gotta be the top three to five walks across like, you know, the Western world. Cause if you start from one end, it starts from, it, it shows you royalty and then it, then it goes to uh, whaling and sandalwood, sugar, pineapple, tourism, luxury, like all these really extractive industries. You know, it's not necessarily good nostalgia, but it's a really stark visual of the colonial and capitalist timeline of Hawaii. Um, and the fire to me symbolizes like the terminal point, like where that all ends up um, and like the need to, to pivot away from such a trajectory. And now that's all gone? It's all gone. What caused these fires and how to fight them after the break? 
get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Kanyala, you have been working on issues of climate justice in Hawaii for a while now. What do we need to know about what led to these fires? The two driving forces for this fire are the climate emergency and colonial greed. Now, the climate emergency, because the National Weather Service says dry vegetation, high winds, like hurricane force winds, and low humidity are the causes of the spread of the fire. Mm. That's not supposed to happen. Those aren't supposed to be the conditions of a tropical island. No one would think a tropical island would be hit with a wildfire. Like that's only a result, those conditions, indisputably, according to science, of the climate crisis, of the polluters, the corporations who threw up a blanket of pollution that is overheating our planet, that's responsible for the fire. Mm. On the other side, on colonial greed, Lahaina Maui wasn't always a dry, fire-prone region. It was a lush wetland, uh, home to some of the world's earliest and most innovative Uh, aquaculture systems. But at the dawn of the 20th century, sugar barons illicitly diverted water to irrigate land that they have taken from our people. Mm. And now, today, descendants of those barons amass vast profits off controlling our irrigation and land use and political influence. So the fact that it's dry, the fact that it no longer has the natural buffers of fish ponds and waterways and native vegetation is the result of colonial greed. Wildfire experts and ecologists have also pointed out another key element in the fires. Flammable grasses, not native to Hawaii, that have been grown on large amounts of land across the state over the years. There could be another culprit behind Hawaii's wildfires. Grass, specifically guinea grass. After rainfall, guinea grass grows incredibly fast. And during droughts, the dry stalks turn into fuel for what has become one of the deadliest wildfires in Hawaii's history. But Kanyala says it goes even deeper than that. I mean, the grasses are one thing. The other part of it is the monocrop, which was sugar for many, many years. That was a way to hold land for the original oligarchs. Once sugar went out of business, They were selling off the land to like developers that had no interest of really rebuilding. The result of that is fallow land across the majority of the island. So once a fire hit, it was rampantly spread through what used to be a lush green landscape, just kind of dirt and shrubs. Mm. In addition to everything you just said, which has exacerbated what we're seeing. Some scientists have pointed to these winds that were connected to a hurricane named Dora as fanning the wildfire. And this isn't the first time. So in 2018, there was another hurricane that caused wildfires around Lahaina and destroyed 2,000 acres of land. In 2021, a fire on Hawaii's big island caused thousands of people to evacuate. Was anything learned or put in place ahead of this one? That's a great question. Every time a new disaster happens, it's shocking to the system, to our infrastructure. And unlike 
you know, the continent of the United States in Hawaii, you can't just bring in firefighters and National Guard from other states. They got to travel 3000 miles to get here. So it's always kind of shocking. And once we think we're prepared for the next one, the next one is bigger. Mm. And that's what the climate crisis is going to bring more intense and more frequent hurricanes. So we're an island. If you look at a globe and put Hawaii at the center of it, it's just blue. There's nothing else on that two-dimensional globe. That's how isolated we are. So for a hurricane to hit us, it's kind of rare, right? Like let's say a storm system forms, it's like a roll of the dice. But because of the climate crisis, the area of each of those hurricanes will be bigger. And every year there'll be many more dice. So if you're rolling, you know, 12 at a time, the chances of one hitting a six Mm. or a category four or five is very high. It's still not guaranteed, but I think that's how people need to be looking at, at this crisis. Yeah. So as a resident, how do you prepare for that? How do you mentally cope with that? That's the challenge. I think most people aren't thinking in terms of coping because they're not quite understanding the urgency yet. They're still seeing this as a one-off occurrence and not something that will become the norm for our children. Now, this isn't a foregone conclusion. If the world were to invest $3 trillion a year to accelerate the rapid deployment of clean energy, we can stave off many of these disasters from happening in the future. We may not hit the 1.5 degree goal that the UN set, we all set together, Mm -hmm. but every fraction means millions of people being spared death or suffering. So in that regard, the urgency of like acting on this crisis has never been greater, especially when it's like your own home. And I just want people listening to understand that this isn't 10 years from now. Like this could happen to the church you go to, your kid's school, your own home tomorrow. Like no one's immune. And that's the urgency that we got to face this crisis with and do everything we can to tell our government to respond appropriately. Like here in America, President Biden needs to declare a climate emergency. He needs to campaign on additional investments, not just what he already did. And anything less than like a trillion a year would be an insult to the legacy of the families that were lost in this tragedy. I want to talk about um, this ongoing conversation that comes up around Hawaii. And it's been for a long time now. And that conversation is about how tourists from around the world and the U.S. mainland, we come to Hawaii for our idyllic vacations and we drain finite resources that are there. Hawaii is the most expensive state to live in the U.S. And out-of-state buyers continue to turn housing units into vacation rentals or second homes. As tourists flock to the state's resorts, golf courses, and beaches, local residents are facing a housing affordability crisis. The Maui City Planning Commission has even looked at putting caps on the number of hotel rooms available to tourists. So I pulled up your Twitter feed here, and you took a screenshot the other day of a travel advisory for Hawaii entitled, Planning to Travel to Hawaii? And you simply wrote in response, don't. Tell me what's behind that. Yeah, well, right now, (laughs) it should be obvious And no one should have to say this, but don't come to Maui. 
We need the hotel rooms for the survivors. If you have an Airbnb, which many people who don't live here do, let someone stay in it out of the goodness of your heart. Like we need time to grieve and heal right now. But even for the longer term, we need time to rebuild and we want to do it on our own terms. And if our path to rebuilding is centered around the tourism industry and the needs of people who play here and not who live here and work here, then it's not going to be rebuilt in a way that actually helps the community. If anything, it's going to be like rampant speculation, private equity, grabbing the land, luxury development. And all the people that live there that seen their homes reduced to ashes will now be forced to move away because they won't be able to afford it. So I think for a lot of disaster capitalists and developers, this was the prime opportunity. And they're already huddling with elected officials to figure out how to move quickly. And we got to, while we're healing and providing relief, we need to figure out how to organize for a just recovery as well. Well, on that note, you know, you mentioned disaster capitalism, and it's this idea that after a huge disaster like this, catastrophic upheaval, capital comes in, takes over, completely changes something or takes something away. What is your hope for Lahaina? Because if a town has been completely destroyed, this is oceanfront. This is an oceanfront town. The prospect for what it could be, those prospects are endless and not all good for Native Hawaiians. What would be your ideal scenario? Yeah, ideally, we could organize community together to create a plan of what they want themselves and figure out a way to resource that plan and to build power where we can actually make it happen. What's given me a lot of encouragement is I was walking through one of the general sites of where the evacuees were staying. I was talking to folks. I was helping along with uh, helping move stuff back and forth. And they they get it. They're like, I just want to get back in my community and start rebuilding. Like, I want to start lifting up rubble. I want to build a house for my neighbor. Mm. Like, can we make a land trust and just raise money and just buy back parcels that only the communities can control? I'm like, these are great ideas. So it's like people are ready to do it. We just got to make sure that like the resources are in their hands and and we're moving quickly enough because that's going to be the challenge here. It's like building trust and like leadership in the community but understanding that we're up against these forces of capital and private equity that are organizing their wealth right now. Hmm. So you mentioned that you were um, meeting and helping evacuees. What else did they tell you? What what struck you about those 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 conversations you were having? What struck me was like, I mean, I I think there there are two responses to these disasters that tend to make the media ones like this disaster porn where it's just like showing people the destruction and it's like the video travels you get clicks yeah and it's the worst moments of some people's lives yeah and then there's like the toxic positivity where it's like look how great everyone is and like we're gonna get through this and not like really having time to like as i teach my sons like if you don't want to be violent and you don't want to be a toxic man like you got to learn how to be sad and process it and let it out and we want to make sure there's enough space for that as well so that's been a challenge understanding the need for positivity right now and I'm, I'm in awe like some of the leaders that I see on the ground like collecting donations and distributing them without them like keeping 
their head off, uh, things can really unravel quickly. But I also don't want to romanticize it, saying like we're all good, the community got this because we don't. We need a lot of support if we're gonna build back in a in a just and fair way. And that's the take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra and Chloe K. Lee, with Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, Miranda Lynn, David Enders, Berenice Campana, Zaina Bazar, Sonia Bagat, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.